Welcome to Pay, Leave, and Power Week on the We Are For Good podcast. It's a week of candid conversations for the nonprofit sector. And today is day five. We're talking about the power dynamics in grant making. We're so glad you're here. Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Can you just feel the excitement? I'm so excited. We have been saving this interview, this conversation. It's been in the making for like nine months right now. And I just want everybody to hold on to your seats because you are about to meet one of the most incredible rock star human beings, social entrepreneurs, and just an amazing mom and somebody who's really changing up the sector for good. So I am just so geeked out today to introduce our community to Yada Ping. And Yada was introduced to us by Jess Campbell out in the Boons, who is a serial connector as well. And of all the names she has ever given us, she said, this is the one that you really need to hone in on. And so we are just delighted to introduce Yada. She's the founder and CEO of Just Fund, and she's a serial entrepreneur. She's just dedicated her life to building social justice infrastructures that are baked in equity, democracy, and I think the thing that I love the most about Just Fund is they love when money can move quickly. And they have this great phrase where they believe money moves at the speed of trust. And they work to ensure that grant makers can move these critical resources equitably, transparently, and securely. I know every nonprofit out there is cheering because this is what we need to, to get this critical funding unrestricted into our missions. But I want to talk a little bit just about JustFund because it's a really innovative online portal and it's connecting funders directly to the organizations to help move these resources while they're facilitating trust, transparency, and accountability and philanthropy. They have 60 funds, over 600 funders using the portal, and they're really helping to move about $250 million to historically excluded and chronically underfunded communities around the country. We are so geeked out to have an incredible conversation about power dynamics, equity and philanthropy, and where we're moving as a sector, but I want to give just a snippet of Yada's incredible bio. Um, Early in her career, she worked to build this really progressive leadership pipeline called Young People Four. And we're going to dive into that because as you all know, we have a really big listener base of young professionals, Gen Z, millennials, who are really trying to pour into that passion of what is my purpose and how can I align what I want to do in life with my purpose. She also holds a master's degree from Columbia and She's an incredible mother. She's an author and on the advisory board also of She the People and Girls Crushing It. I think we're about to crush this conversation. Yada, (laughs) get in this house and get to know our family. We're so excited you're here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation as well and love that we we get to talk about equity and and trust and how we ultimately, you know, shift power to frontline groups doing the hard work. 
Oh my gosh. Already the tone setting is fantastic. So we need to back it up a little and we want to know about little Yada. We want to know about where you grew up. We want to know what informed your life that led you to want to chase after this justice work. You know, so I'm the first person in my family to be born in America. I come from a, a Chinese father and a Brazilian mom who immigrated from Brazil to Atlanta, um, Georgia. And I grew up in the South. I was born in Atlanta, grew up in the South, Alabama, Florida, um, then the Midwest, Missouri. We kind of moved around a bit. And um, my parents came here to make sure that my sister and I could grow up in a democracy, much like my dad's parents before him had fled communist China to go to Brazil to make sure that their kids um, would grow up in a democracy. And then, of course, in the 70s, there was a military dictatorship in Brazil that kind of changed the tone um, where my parents were and they, they came to the United States. And, you know, I'm so grateful that we had a chance to experience democracy. And I think that just runs through my bloodstream, you know, and uh, early in my life, I had the blessing of working uh, in college with an incredible professor, Rick Vogelsong at Rollins College in Warner Park, Florida, who taught me about, you know, participatory democracy and, you know, how we actually are in control of what happens in our communities and how do we build that. And I, I went early on to work at the Kettering Foundation to study how to make democracy work as it should and developed a very early commitment and passion to, you know, with the nonprofit sector and and see nonprofits as that critical connective tissue between us as individuals and each other. You know, they really fill in the gap where government can't and help us really be a community. So I've dedicated my life to this, to the nonprofit sector. And and I think I always will. Wow. I mean, of course that has been your experience because the way you showed up is so bold and so, um, way that sees people, you know, at all levels of not just the organizations, but those that you're trying to serve. And I just, I want to give you a chance to kind of tell a little bit of the story of one of your first founding journeys, which was for young people for, because this organization to me, gosh, there's so much to learn of what you were doing a decade ago. And so I'd love you to kind of walk you through that before we hop into Just Fund. John, that's so sweet that you think I built young people for a decade ago. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was like 16 years ago, but I'm a lot older somehow. I can't do math is what this means. No, what happens is we're just getting older and we just forget time, you know, but yes, I was super lucky early in my career that I had an incredible mentor in Norman Lear. So I, who we all know is one of the greats, right? And, and, um, and I was actually working on a book um, because he and his wife had purchased an original copy of the Declaration of Independence. And he oh built a nonprofit gosh. called, yeah, one of the only, well, the only privately owned copy of the Declaration of Independence. And um, he wanted to make sure that document got in the hands of citizens around the country. And he built a nonprofit called the Declaration of Independence Road Trip. And that's a mouthful, but um, his son-in-law, Daniel Katz, dear friend, mentor, like a brother to me. And I worked on a book called Why Freedom Matters, which is just up here um, always right there on my shelf. Why Freedom Matters. It's an anthology. Um, when Norman and I were on our book tour, I was reading the New York times. He's sitting across from me. We're on the book tour for why freedom matters. And I am saying, are you seeing this story about Patrick Henry college? It's this conservative school for conservatives where they actually take homeschooled evangelical conservatives into Patrick Henry college. And then they put them as aides for congressional leaders. And this is like an intentional pipeline for evangelical homeschool kids going to Patrick Henry college. This is years and years ago. Um, and then feed them directly as congressional aid. So it's like this pipeline for conservatives to get into 
into power. And I'm like, what are we doing as progressives? We should build, what are we doing? He, he looks over his newspaper and says, well, you should go build that. And, and it goes back to his reading. And I'm like, okay, so how do we do that? And that, that's how Young People 4 was born. I worked with some amazing, brilliant people. Allison Friedman, whose name you will come across, who ran for um, office in, in um, gosh, I think it's Virginia, um, a while back. But a brilliant woman who helped me kind of shape Young People 4 into this a pipeline for progressive leaders to really make sure that we have young people of color in particular, uh, you know, running for office and serving in nonprofits and building this infrastructure for young people to be able to lead. Um, and then one of the, the first person I hired to work with me on that team was a brilliant 23 year old city council person from Tallahassee, Florida, who had just graduated from FAMU, ran for office and um, was elected, you know, I think the race cost something like $5,000. But I'm talking, of course, about Andrew Gillum, you know, who who went on to have um, a long term career, you know, in, in, in politics and in elective office and has a servant leader leadership heart. And we built young people for young elected officials network frontline leaders academy to get young people, you know, interested in and able to run and win. Yeah. So that's my story there with young people for. I just think about the legacy of planting those seeds with someone who is young and hungry and passionate and putting them directly in their zone of genius. I think we just had a great conversation with Abby Falick over at Global yep. Citizen Year, and she was having this exact conversation about why do we feel like we have to go exactly to college just because that's what we've always been told? What about pouring in to your passion and getting some lived experience? I just think of the ripples that must be happening from um, that incredible organization. But we got to talk about your other incredible organization, which is Just Fund. And I'd love for you to give a kind of an overview to our listeners because I absolutely love this concept of building a grant-making solution where funders just move their money so quickly to grantees. Can you share just a little bit about the history and the scope of that work with us? Yeah. I built uh, started building Just Fund back in 2017 when I was at a network called Solidaire Network, which is a network of individual donors and institutions trying to move money in solidarity with social movements. And the values were there. When I came in there, like most, you know, grant making institutions, I realized, you know, our values are one thing, but our systems aren't in line with our values. Mm. You know, so here we were um, wanting to move money quickly and in solidarity with social movements, but our fiscal sponsor had a process where they needed 18 attachments, took six months to get a grant out the door, and it didn't work to move money seamlessly in a simple, easy way to get money to movements. And then, you know, we realized all of our friends, we all had different application systems. So how much time are we making organizations spend just applying for funding? Yeah. You know, and at Solidaire, for example, similar to other um, grant-making institutions, we'd take in 300 proposals, but we'd only fund 15. I met 285 really extraordinary organizations and their work, and all that time would go into the trash can, right? There was nothing we could do for those groups. And I just had a feeling if we could get those 285 organizations to our membership base, just that could move more money to movements, right? They, someone would find a match inside that network beyond what we were able to do through the fold fund. Um, and shortly after we started having this idea, we also uh, started the emergent fund. And at that point we realized, gosh, we control two grant cycles now. We could do a common app. We could do that common grant application everyone's been talking about, but not building. And just, even if it's just for these two, 
uh, entities, we could save so much time for organizations, especially when we know it takes 40 hours for a group just to apply for funding. What does that mean? You know, it's five thousand dollars in someone's time, an opportunity cost or actual direct cost, um, and you're probably your likelihood of getting funding is less than thirty percent. So you're doing that over and over again. Who are we actually inviting into the process? Someone who has the money, the knowledge, the networks, the expertise to be able to apply for funding. So we were very excited about this common app solution, defending the Dream Fund, which is a collaborative fund. Nat Williams Hill Snowden Foundation was like, I'm in. I don't know what it is, but we're doing it. You know, let's just do it. <laughs> yeah. And the three of us just jumped in. We jumped into the common app solution, ran our three grant cycles together, meaning a group used one application to apply to all three funds. I think that year we moved $200,000, you know, um, and but we had 800 groups apply, which meant they were like saving them, each of them, 80 hours in applications to the two other groups, right? And, you know, 120 hours all told in application time, just putting that time to mission advancing work, not the burden of applying for funding. Took them, you know, 20 to 60 minutes to apply on Just Fund using the common app, app solution. And now we're, you know, we've exceeded 150 million we're on track to hit 250 million. Um, you know, we have 6,700 organizations that have used the Common App solution. You know, they come in, apply to one fund, but then use that Common App to apply to others, just like with college. And the really exciting part is also getting the just funders, the individual donors who are sitting on $142 billion in their donor advice funds to help them identify, to find and fund um, groups that are now in this portal, you know, really trying to move money to these chronically underfunded communities. Oh I gosh. love that you just take these big questions and you chase them. You know, you get to the root that seems like so simple on the surface, but we know from being in it, there's just a lot of hands to connect and a lot of things in the background, especially with this app. So the common application that you're talking about, what does it really look like? I mean, you you talked about the one application and then you're in this database. What's it? What does it look like after that? And what's kind of the future of philanthropy in light of this in your view? Mm. You know, I think for, so for the common common app, the way we've operationalized it, um, and there are other folks having more conversations around this common app solution um, and have done it like in different cities um, like Philadelphia or different, you know, yeah, states. And then I know there are other folks trying to talk about a common app solution. The way we've operationalized it, it's four questions. So it's your summary. It's about your organization, who's on your team and what's your financial need. And we identified those four early on. There was a, an advisory council. What do you really need to know to move money? What do you actually really need to know? Well, you really, to move money, legally need to know the org name, the EIN, and the address. Right. That's, that's actually all you need to know. Um, and then you have to decide you want to fund them. So how do you decide you want to fund them? Is it the application or is it the relationship? I fundamentally believe money moves at the speed of trust. I've seen it. Right. If I trust you and you're moving money somewhere and you ask me to join you, I'm going to do it. If I meet this organization and I trust that leader and I trust and believe in their vision, I'm moving money. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we believe that we need to free up time because that's the biggest enemy of trust building is we don't have the time. You know, our culture doesn't allow it. And these application processes certainly don't allow it. So we need to free up people's time. My favorite class in business school was um, process flow management. And so when I look at a, a problem, I love that was your favorite. I class. look at, <laughs> I look at the process flow, and I see where are the bottlenecks, and then how can we take our resources and apply it to those bottlenecks to free up space and to you know un unlock, get unstuck the system that's not working. And the biggest bottleneck I see and have seen in grant making is the admin. 
You know, it just takes so much time and, and more than the actual direct time it takes to collect the proposal, the 501c3, whatever attachments, it's the opportunity cost of, of spending time that way. Meaning you're not building transformative relationship. You're just doing all this admin. So we've got these brilliant folks in philanthropy spending time on this admin when really their time is better spent doing the, the trust building work. Okay. On behalf of the 1.8 million nonprofits in the United States and myself as a recovering major gift officer, I want to thank you. I feel so seen, so valued. I am, I am going back to the recesses of my brain, thinking of all the grant applications I applied for in my career. I'm thinking of all the legwork when I wasn't even just working on the proposal, but trying to nurture the relationship, trying to figure out who are the board members, trying to make those connections in the background. I think about on the back end, even after you've gotten the grant, just filling out all of these endless, you know, questionnaires proving that you did what you said you were going to do, which I still think has some merit, definite merit, but holy smokes, I feel like you have poured the Drano down and unclogged. <laughs> you're, you're like the philanthropic Drano that is getting us unclogged to move more quickly into what we do. And I just keep hearing this season, this theme of trust-based philanthropy coming up. And I want everybody to just sit in that for a second, because these are the ideas that we need to be socializing to our donors, to our funders, to our believers and our people that follow us, our rabid fans. If they have trust in us, then we will put the money where we think it'll be best used. Then you start to strip away things like the overhead myth and you start to strip away at, oh, we don't have enough money for professional development or for innovation or trying stuff. So do-gooders, Yada is your people. You, I feel like we have a warrior on the front lines really advocating for us, which I think is just a great segue to get into this equity conversation. And you have lived working toward equity. I love this story about your dad and democracy and how that has just been a core of your DNA growing up. And I'm going to guess that your kids probably have some of that baked into them too. So talk to us a little bit about how philanthropy is shifting and how what you're seeing right now in, in how funders and how maybe even nonprofits are starting to center equity in their practice and in their work. Yeah. I mean, firstly, I think, you know, out of crisis sometimes comes opportunities, right? Breakdowns can lead to breakthroughs. I've seen it happen over and over again. And certainly this major crisis that we continue to live in with our global pandemic brought about certain behavior changes in philanthropy that I hope are lasting, you know? And before that, I think, you know, with the reckoning that the racial reckoning our country has been going through, um, since George Floyd really kind of catapulted us into this space where, you know, philanthropy wants to fund black and indigenous and people of color led work and, and, and starts to, you know, realize, oh my gosh, less than 1% of my portfolio is funding black and brown people and communities. We've got to fix that. So there's an appetite. And then with COVID there, there was an opportunity where the restrictions were just released, right? Boards voted like we don't, we can just, let's give more money to groups. Let's make it easy because this is an emergency situation. And so all of these systems that were built, really that we've inherited over time, overbuilt systems that have been overbuilt were, were just stopped and people could 
use any system to move money. And all of a sudden, money was moving more rapidly, bigger sums of money over longer period of times. And what we see now, you know, people are, are sticking to it. I mean, there are some really great challenges out there too, like the Donors of Color Climate Challenge, you know, where they say, hey, 1.3% of all of environmental justice money, environmental money is going to communities of color. 1.3%. Let's take the challenge, you know, and they issue the challenge to 40 major foundations um, across the United States saying get to 30%, you know? And so groups are, foundations are taking the transparency pledge to share what percent currently they're funding that are um, BIPOC-led or going to BIPOC communities and how they're going to get to 30%. And it's really, you know, we need we need more of that. So I think there's there's equity in that way. And then there's also just recognizing why are we making groups jump through a hundred hoops to get a thousand dollars or 10,000? What do we really need again for groups to, you know, for us to make a decision if we want to fund a group or not? And, and why do we all have different systems for applying? Colleges figured it out, right? With the common app solution. I remember applying for college and it wasn't easy. You know, now the Common App Solution facilitates a better system. So for us, with the Common App, we have those four questions. And we also have a bunch of, you know, tags the groups can add so that funders can find them more easily. And funders can do analysis on who they're funding and who they're not funding more easily through the Common App. And then funders can ask, just like with college, up to three supplemental questions and take up to three attachments. So there's some level of customization on the Common App. But the group, the bulk of their applications done once. And then they can answer just the supplemental questions for these additional, you know, funding opportunities they find on Just Fund. You come in to apply to, you know, Decolonizing Wealth Liberated Capital Fund. But while you're there, hang on, you could apply to Emergent Fund, a, a family foundation, you know, a, a national foundation doing regranting. And by the way, because your proposal is inside Just Fund, there are thousands of individual donors who are using Just Fund to do what we call find and fund where you can use those tags and filtering systems to find groups that you you want to fund. And just by virtue of being in the database, you're going to get money flowing, you know, to you from these individual donors. Again, you know, kind of just sitting on $142 billion in their donor advice fund. Let's start to move money, you know, to, to historically excluded organizations. And that's what the portal's facilitating. I mean, it really is shifting power and like just recognizing the work that's happening on the front lines as we kind of put more empowerment to putting focused effort there instead of spending all this administrative time. Would you talk about this idea of building trust though? I think, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm so curious at how you would advise nonprofits that are buying into this, that want to jump in. How do you build that trust? Like what's the best way to lean in and build that with funders across the board? Yeah. I mean, it is a little tricky, John, right? Because people sometimes equate relational philanthropy with trust-based philanthropy, all these terms and like these new terms that, you know, wrapping paper for work that's been happening for decades. You know, you think about funding exchange and, you know, different different networks that have been around for for decades trying to do this work. And and sometimes a wrapping paper sticks. And I think what P. Infante and, and Brenda Solorzano and, 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 you know, others built in trust-based philanthropy is, you know, all women of color, you know, um, it's sticking. Right. And it works. And, and then, you know, unfortunately, it's also getting co-opted by a bunch of folks who are not people of color and saying we do trust based philanthropy. And they think it's like a set of practices like, oh, well, and it, and it can be, but it's not a checklist. Right. It's about your culture inside the organization, your systems, your leadership and your practice. But it's not just multi-year grants and we're done. You got to change wow. the whole thing, you know, and 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 really make sure you're centering um, trust 
again, in your culture, in your leadership, in your systems, and also your grant making practices. But people will go to the easiest thing, which is, oh, we're just going to do a multi-year grant, you know, once, and then we're done, we did it. <laughs> um, you know, so there, there's, I think, a lot of work that I know Shadi and Pia at Trust-Based Philanthropy and others are trying to do to reconceptualize. They even came out more recently with TBP, Trust-Based Philanthropy and 4D, which talks about those four elements. And what do you really need to do, you know, um, to be an organization that centers trust, a foundation that centers trust that, to me, that means, you know, um, so I say that because it's not, it's not, if we say trust-based philanthropy is about relationships, what does that mean? It means, oh my gosh, Becky, could you imagine as like a, that major gifts officer having to be like in meaningful relationship with all of your donors? <laughs> you know, who has time for that? Then it's a proximity issue too. Cause I mean, not everybody's yeah. got access to that. Yeah. You got it. You know, so mm-hmm. the, exclu- you know, there it is, the exclusivity of the way our systems have been built, who has access, you said it to relationships and to funders and who has the capacity to do the prospecting, great prospecting work, you know, Becky did, you know, um, and building the relationships with folks. So I think when it comes to trust, it's really, to me, I, I think about the other side as, as taking risks, you know, you have to be able to, um, to trust people and what they say. And, you know, maybe you don't need a bunch of benchmarks and, you know, here's what we're going to accomplish. Cause I don't actually know. I'm just trying something yeah. new here, guys. <laughs> And let's oh my see gosh, if it you're works. trying stuff. I mean, hey. that is a hashtag in this community is try stuff. And I just have to tell you, like, I I am truly near tears right now because what you're describing is the world that I want to live in. It's the world I want to I want to work in. And when I think about people listening to this episode, and we go back to those starry-eyed dreamers that we are, maybe you are, are are a starry-eyed dreamer still as a young person right now, why we went into this work is because I wanted to chase all of these things that you were talking about. And shifting that power dynamic is, is so critical to our success. And this entire week, as we're discussing equity and how do we fight back to bring more equity into our work, it's just going to require bravery in this. And I'm feeling that so much with you because it is going against a tide that has been hardwired a completely different way in us. And I want to thank you for talking about values and going back to value and culture because all of it is going to flow from something like this. And I'm just curious for, I'm thinking about the tiny nonprofit out there who's listening. And I just want to know what kind of counsel you would give them as they work to educate their funders, their donors about why we need to make this shift and why it's why it's in the best interest of the mission, why the mission is actually going to thrive and be more vibrant when we lean into this. What kind of counsel would you give to them to start socializing these themes and these ideas? Yeah. I mean, I think this goes back also to John's question of like, what does trust really mean? It's trusting yourself as a leader, you know, and what you're trying to build. Um, because oftentimes we're chasing the dollar and so we'll bend into a pretzel to get that money. Um, when really we know it's not what the kind of partnership we need to actually grow, um, the work we're doing. And so I think it comes down to a fundamental self-trust in you as a leader and yourself as a leader and in your team and what you're building and really being disciplined to seek out the right partners who are going to help you build towards that vision, who have that shared vision in your work, it's not chasing a dollar. It's really building partnerships with folks who, who want to, to work towards that common vision that you share. Um, and being, you know, 
thoughtful about the money you're taking, you know, um, really wanting to have those folks who are going to hold your hand over the years and being confident in what you're building. So you trust yourself when you do that. Generally, confidence comes right after. And so that means when you are talking to a funder, you're sharing that vision of what you're trying to build and see if they want to come along. You know, and what does that mean? That means they're going to need to come along with you and help you. Uh, what are we looking at? Three to five year grant? You know, come walk with me. I'm not going to be able to operationalize this vision in six months. So no, at the, uh, you know, at the six month report, we're not going to see the impact that I'm talking about. I'm going to need three to five years to get there. And I'm going to need you to hold my, to walk with me. You bring the money. I'm going to bring the expertise. You know, you bring the resources and connections. I'm going to bring the team and the people who really know how to get the job done. So I think really this boils down to trusting yourself, you know, surrounding yourself with people you trust and being disciplined around the kind of partnerships you're trying to cultivate um, and really seeing this as a team effort. You know, you're bringing so much knowledge and expertise and relationships with people in your community that you're serving. And the funder is bringing something too, money. Really, we need resources, connection, networks, some, you know, Higher some different view because they're funding so many groups that maybe you can't see and let's just walk together towards this common vision I think that's very important. We're not out here with a tin cup trying to ask for money we're, we're trying to build something together and we need partners who understand that so really getting clear about what you're trying to do And trusting yourself to do it um, I think is the fundamental step to to to, make, to being able to build something that's sustainable Hey friends, we're taking a quick pause to quite literally invite you into this conversation. We really want to hear from you and hear about your personal experiences and the topics that we're unpacking this week as part of Pay, Leave, and Power Week. So head on over to weareforgood.com slash power, and there you're going to find a place where you can share your story confidentially through our secure form that's there, or you can even leave us an anonymous voice message if you want to add your actual voice to the conversation. You know we'd love to hear from you either way. That's weareforgood.com slash power. And while you're there, we've also designed the page to lead you into action within your organization. Here you can connect with this week's guest and get a deep roundup of resources and access to frameworks and scripts to help you get this conversation started as we begin changing the trajectory of these deeply rooted problems that are plaguing our sector. We hope to see you there. needs like a recording of you saying that like on the daily to me yada that was so good if i can just thread this together in my head i mean i think flexing the power of no is huge and i think we're taught like you said with the 10 cup to be the receiver always but we have to come in and claim that power in these situations and know who the partners we want to partner with and it's happened with us in our business too that we've sat across from sponsors that like, Hey, this doesn't feel like value alignment. And it feels so good to not take that money, you know, mm-hmm. and to say no. And there's so much power in that, but I realize we've got to do some work as a sector. I think of the people that are fighting on the front lines and, you know, in these spaces that are difficult and they do need the money to equal their mission. Can we talk about shifting that power? I mean, practically speaking, tactically speaking, how can we really shift and give some strategies for how can you you know, get philanthropy and shift it to the front lines where they can really activate without being desperate, I guess, if there's an answer to that. You know, I think, again, I mean, organizations have to be thoughtful about where they're seeking their their resources, you know, um, and not just go after um, the next dollar. You know, you're building relationships and you're building um, community for the work that you're doing. And I think a lot of us kind of go after the Oprah Winfrey model. Like, let me go out over here and see who's going to give me this, like, 
million dollars, you know, and we're building from our core and our people. That's why, you know, nonprofits have a great structure. You've got your team, you've got your board, you've got maybe an advisory council, you've got other groups that are doing this work. And we need to start to, to be thoughtful about that network that we're building, that connective tissue that we're building, who are folks who are going to really be invested with us in terms of what we're accomplishing. So to me, it's really around understanding that you actually hold most of the power in this partnership with funders. And if you want to talk about funders and organizations, funders have to move their money. They're required by law to move their money. They have to move 5% of their money towards their mission. Why not you? You know, mm-hmm. and so really they need to move the money towards things that are going to work. So you actually are in control here where you can help that funder or program officer or whomever get to their goals. If you listen enough and can understand what they're trying to accomplish and then figure out how your work fits into that overall vision, you know, and kind of find that common through line so you can work together towards one of those objectives. I just think you're so wise and I I just want to live in Yada's world and the systems that we're building. And I, and I want to compliment you on really leaning into DAFs. And as we're talking about DAFs, I want to make sure that everybody knows what this acronym is donor advised funds of which, I mean, literally hundreds of billions of dollars sitting in our country right now, unspent that could go toward any one of our charities. I wonder if you could just talk for a second about moving high net worth donors in this $143 billion worth of DAF funding toward chronically underfunded communities and what you've been able to see as a result of that. Yeah, you know, I think um, a couple things. I think, you know, there's a lot of folks who, you know, when you come into wealth or you just are committed to to giving back, you'll put your money into a donor advised fund. Um, Here's the challenge. When you do that, take that action, you get your tax deduction right away. So you've already moved your money to into a tax sheltered vehicle. You've gotten your tax deduction. So what's your incentive to move beyond that? You really don't have one, right? Because the money's also growing. And then maybe in 10 years, you could give out more money. But there's no one forcing you to move that money once you've made that decision. So that money can literally sit there forever until policy changes. So what is what needs to happen? I mean, there, there needs to be a, a way. And there, of course, there are philanthropic advisors inside these donor advised fund vehicles trying to help you figure out where you want to move money beyond your alma mater, beyond your, your kids' schools um, and education. You know, But what do you really want to accomplish? And the number one reason why uh, ph- philanthropists say, donors say they aren't moving money to BIPOC communities is because they don't know them right? It's not folks in their network. So I think part of what we've been trying to solve at Just Fund is, well, let me show you. Here's 6,700 incredible organizations. Come find something that feels good to you, you know, um, that you want to fund and take try, try it. The other solution is really collaborative funds, you know, where I think um, individual donors um, who have wealth, you know, are used to a financial advisor who are going to present them with an index fund, right? Like here, you fund this this mutual fund or this fund and you, you know, three or three businesses are going to do really well. Two are going to do terrible. Some are going to do all right. And collaborative funds really fit that same model on for their philanthropic vehicles where you can move money to a collaborative fund. Your dollar becomes seven times $7, right? When you move to a collaborative fund. So I'm joint, we're pooling all of our money. So if I give $10,000 to one organization, that's one thing. But if I give 10,000 to a collaborative fund, and then that collaborative fund's moving a million, all of a sudden I get to know hundreds of organizations. And maybe that's going to build a re- give me a chance to build a relationship with an organization to bring into my own portfolio, but it does so in a way where I can mitigate risk. 
I can be a little bit anonymous if I need to be as a new donor, but I can get to know a bunch of organizations and I can really stretch my dollar. So that's become a vehicle that, I mean, it's been around for a hundred years, but that I think new philanthropists are really leaning into in particular when it comes to equity, we are seeing a lot of um, participatory grant making coming, you know, uh, more, more, more into to being or activist led grant making where we actually trust people with direct lived experience People who are closest to the issues, we believe, are closest to the solutions and therefore should be directing where the money goes. So you're seeing that model. I'm seeing that model take shape, you know, where 90% of our funds have that decision-making body. So that's great. Great steps towards equity. Yeah, it's an exciting time that, I mean, this is getting so much more attention and so much more focused resource around it. So as we talk about trust a lot, there's a thread of this conversation. I feel like when you have someone's trust it just opens you up to a world that you can chase and take risk, take more bold risks. And I think, you know, from being in this sector so long, we, we believe deeply that there needs to be a lot more of that happening. And so I wonder what your take is on this. I mean, obviously there's a lot of money moving into this. What does it look like to take risk with philanthropy and how are y'all leaning into that? Well, I mean, I love Rob Reich and the work that he's done in this space, you know, um, so I can't take credit for these ideas, but he's really helped shape my thoughts on this, where, you know, philanthropy was designed to be a society's risk capital and it's become like the opposite. Mm. You know, I mean, there's no reason why philanthropy can't take risks, right? It's not, it's, it's money that has to move and um, it's sp- supposed to fund innovations that government and private sectors can't invest in, right? So we're going to find a cure for diseases. It's going to be by failing and failing quickly and getting to the right solution. But philanthropy has become the opposite where it's like, oh no, I need to see my ROI in six months. Let's see. What are you accomplishing here? Where's my money going? Versus, hey, take a bunch of risks, fail, and let's get closer to the solution. I remember meeting with a gentleman who funded one of, an individual donor who funded one of my projects. He founded a huge online brand um, and t- was telling me his story. Um, who, you know, he's a, a white um, man, an entrepreneur who said, boy, I had to fail five times before I got to this working model. I said, you failed five times. Yep. And I said, you know, who, who, who continued to invest in you? It was the same investors because they knew the more he failed, the closer he'd get to the winning solution for this problem he was trying to solve. And he did. And meanwhile, philanthropy does, oh, you didn't get to the solution in six months. Sorry, we can't continue to fund you, or we need the next sexy, cool, you know, shiny object to fund, as opposed to sticking with someone, knowing that it takes time to solve systemic problems. And so we're going to walk with you for 10 years. And, and that to me, um, it's the way we need to fund. You know, if we actually want to, if we really want to solve systemic problems in this country, we got to be willing to, to have that investment not pay off right away. It's going to take time. Let people fail. That's how we get to, to the best solutions. Um, it's the smartest way to grow, you know, in anything. I always tell my team, let's fail fast. We do an agile business planning at any, any place I work, you know, we're, we're agile, we're doing agile, which is, you know, figure out the problem, come up with a bunch of solutions and then concentrate on what we think has the highest perceived impact and is the easiest for our team to accomplish. And then we just do that over and over again, fail, 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 learn, 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 repeat, you know, until we get to the winning solutions. And we, we, we don't, we don't have the freedom to do that most often in nonprofit culture where we have to like, especially if you're a person of color, you're going to have to tap dance your way. Here's how I performed. Here's how amazing I am. And you put on this performance, which is like, well, actually 
I failed in a bunch of ways. And it's great because I know what doesn't work and I'm going to help my team get closer to what will. Wow. Can you imagine just having that empowered mindset in your mission of let's fail forward? And I would even say to you, to everyone listening who's who's nodding their heads at this, telling the story of your failure is just as important as going after the funding. I mean, we want people to know what we learned in that. How Well, yeah, we didn't get exactly there, but we uncovered another problem or we found another opportunity and this is aligns in this way. And I, you know, I, I can't help but thread story in all that we're doing because I'm a writer. And I, and I think that when you can illustrate and help people visualize how the, the dream could be bigger because we tried and experimented and failed and learned and we're pivoting. I mean, John, I think about our seventh value. It's grow, disrupt, adapt, repeat. That is the seventh value of our company. And it is all about trying stuff, failing forward, because this is hard work. These problems are big in their scale. They are deep in the way that they hurt communities, that they've hurt us personally, but there's so much hope and promise in what could be innovated to the next level. So if you're a leader out there and you're feeling just jazzed by this conversation, I just want to tell you, first of all, go follow Yada and her incredible thought leadership online because she will power this into you. But think about how you can infuse this into your culture. How does it start? How do you start socializing this with your board? with your staff, in your impact reports. Um, I just think about this conversation we had with Mallory Erickson about the overhead myth. And she says, you know, I tell people, you know, who are proud of their failing to put their put on their website, we're a bronze medalist and charity navigator, which is awesome because it means we're trying stuff and we're proud to show that we are innovating and scaling. So totally geeked out about all of this. Love your wisdom. I want to go to the school of paying and learn how to be a really luminary leader. But I, I love your stories of philanthropy. I love this young people for and what you've done. I mean, all the way with um, Norman Lear is just such an incredible story. Talk to us about a story of philanthropy that has changed you. It doesn't have to be the biggest gift. Tell us about something that really a moment that hit you and told you why this work was just so deeply important. I, I think about one that happened to me really early in my career. Um, by someone I was lucky enough who really believed in me and my vision. And I remember um, I was building young people for, and, and uh, you know, Norman didn't give me a penny for that work. He just believed in me and like was the best mentor for me because he didn't make it easy. He wasn't like, here's, you know, million dollars or whatever, go build the thing. It was, you're going to learn how to fundraise. You're going to learn how to make the case. And I mean, I learned by doing, and I am forever grateful um, to him for, I mean, he opened every door you know, um, but what I learned in building that first, you know, really big, um, non, you know, effort, um, was life-changing. But I remember there was a woman who, who I knew from building youth justice funding collaborative, who was in my, my, my world, who really believed in what I was building young people for. And she said, I want you to pitch me. And I want you to pitch me in front of the development director at people for the American way, who was, you know, a lot (laughs) of white male leadership. And I was like, okay, you know, and she said, and before you do, how much are you asking for? And I 
in my like early twenties, here I am being like, well, I mean, like, I don't know, $25,000. And she's like, honey, you know, I'm going to give you, I'm going to literally look into my checking account and I'm just going to give you whatever's in there. And it was like $306,000, right? This is an individual donor who had, you know, significant money, but it taught me of like, why did I ask her for $25,000? What was it in me that was so, thought my vision was so small, you know, and here's this woman who believes in me, right? Who was, who taught me, you know, how to think about, you know, talking to individual donors. And so from that moment on, I always gave a range, you know, here's what you could do with 25,000. Here's what you could do with 250,000. Here's what you could do with a million. Like you just never know where people are or what they're willing to give. And so don't aim so small, you know, be bold in what you want to do. If you believe and you trust in what you're building, then what are you doing? Asking for, you know, 2000, 5,000, like dream big here. And someone's going to be there for you. But if you don't ask, you're not going to get it. So, I mean, I, I've changed the way that I ask, you know, like, look, I don't know what you're thinking about spending because we never really know, you know, someone could be moved in that moment and you give them that low and that medium and that high version and you see what happens. Yeah. Okay. Ugh. I got to respond to this from a gift officer perspective, because what you just said is really disruptive because there are a lot of schools of thought and development that say, don't ever give a range because so you're giving somebody an out to go to the floor of that range rather than the ceiling. However, what you just said was so brilliant when you wrap the range around impact and what you could do at the $25,000 level, the $100,000 level, the million dollar level, it allows someone to come into your dream with you. And I think that is one of the most brilliant major gift officer strategies I've ever heard. Brilliant. And I'm applying this in my life personally. Thank you for this. It's so good. So, okay. Our last question is always, what's a one good thing that you would offer us we define it as, you know, a mantra or maybe it's a secret to your success, just a piece mm. of advice that you would leave our community with. So my mantra that I would love to leave people with is this quote that has led me in my life, um, which is, it's not the challenges that define us, but how we respond to the challenges. You know, there are going to be a lot of challenges that come thrown your way as you're building and leading critical work on the front lines. I mean, so many you won't even remember the challenges, but what will define you is how you respond, you know? So allow the challenges to come. That's our, that's how we grow. Um, but really what we can control is how we respond. And that's what defines us as leaders, you know, as organizations and, and let that be, um, you know, our way forward to not be completely overwhelmed by these challenges, but let's respond um, by rising up, you know, and, and meeting those challenges head on. That is a completely wonderful one good thing. Okay, Yada, how can people connect with you? How can people connect with Just Fund? How can they find you? Where are you on socials? Give us all the details. Yeah, I mean, come on and join us at justfund.us. You know, um, fill out a form, let us connect with us. Come find us on our social. We're at Just Fund everywhere Instagram, LinkedIn, um, you know, Facebook, all Twitter. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn too at, you know, Yada Peng. It's I-A-R-A-P-E-N-G. Come and find me. Let's talk. Let's connect. Um, you know, we love, we love your stories. We love what you're doing. And it's our job, you know, to move money to groups that are doing the really hard work of protecting our democracy and fighting for justice at every, you know, at every turn. So we, we love what you're doing and we're here to shine a light on your work and hopefully make your work just a little bit easier um, as money starts to move, you know, to groups that 
have been historically excluded and chronically underfunded. So um, we hope that you start to see the benefit um, as philanthropy starts to be reset, you know, and center equity and trust in the way they give. We're here for it. And I, I don't want this to sound too presumptuous, but I think you are making your mom and your dad so proud with this work that you're doing. This is a legacy that is getting passed down and rippled. I'm just so proud of you and just so grateful to know you. Keep going. We are rooting for Just Fund. Thank you. Thank you. Hey friends, thanks so much for being here. Did you know we create a landing page for each podcast episode with helpful links, freebies, and even shareable graphics? Be sure to check it out at the link in this episode's description. You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. We'd love for you to join our good community. It's free, and you can think of it as the after party to each podcast episode. You can sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing. If you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfer, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.